Hi everybody and welcome back to the 5th episode of the Desi VC podcast. As you may know by now, on this show I spend time speaking to angel investors and venture capitalists investing in tech startups in India. I'm very excited to share this episode as we're going to be speaking a lot about family offices. Something we've covered a little bit on this podcast in our very first episode with Sanjay. Well, today I'm in conversation with Anirudh Damani. Anirudh is the managing partner at Artha Venture Fund, an early stage sector agnostic fund backed by Singularity Holdings, Ramesh Damani and Ashok Damani. They make investments across three broad categories: consumption, consumption enablers, and B2B. I'll let Anirudh share more about what that really encompasses and what that means in the context of family offices as investment vehicles. So without further ado, here's Anirudh. Welcome to the podcast Anirudh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. How's it going? Good, good. It's uh, it's nice and cold up here in New York, and uh, looking uh, looking forward to a great conversation today. Likewise, you know, I wanted to start off with a very interesting topic. Um, it's not always necessary for people to follow the footsteps of their family members or join family businesses. So, what really attracted you to venture capital and investing, and when did that trigger go off? Uh so. I think the entire journey is 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 one where uh, you know you start connecting the dots in the past, right? So um, if you if you look at uh, my career, I started my career as a door to door sales agent. I sold long term energy contracts in West Texas um, back in 2005, and uh, after that, I set up a commercial broking division in 2006, which then went on to get a nationwide contract. so we sold in over 14 markets in the us uh, ended up becoming an owner of the business in 2009 again was opportunistic in a way because uh, the business we were working for was uh, about to shut down and me and a couple of friends uh, didn't didn't want to put so many people on the street in the middle of a recession so we actually pulled in all our capital and we made a pitch to the owner to buy up the business and uh, then uh, ran the business for 3 years uh, and after that we got a chance to sell the business which we, which at least i put, i sold my part and i moved back to india with the intention that india was la- the world's largest energy market at that time and there were there were you know there was all talks of de- deregulation happening uh, along the lines of what we were doing in texas uh, after coming to india i uh, realized the big difference between running a company in the us and running a company in india which is you know night and day if you ask me uh, and uh, so while i was setting up my company i thought you know with all the trouble that i was going through in setting up a company in india can i also help other entrepreneurs uh set up their uh, operations and help them with a little bit of money and a lot more help on the sales marketing recruiting structuring maybe even help and even helping them with the dealing with the bureaucracy and uh, did that uh, you know that thesis started off as a very small thesis then obviously over a period of time i just started started liking working with entrepreneurs so much that became my full time job and i hived off the energy business to my brother um who's now managing it for the last 3 years um and you know after 6 6 7 years you know 70 odd investments uh, almost 15 exits um it occurred to me that maybe it was time to make this thing institutional and uh, with a, with the help of a lot of family offices that that you know were basically co-investing with us 
we uh, we set up this fund, Artha Venture Fund, in 2018, and yeah, and then we haven't looked back since. So it wasn't really like a planned way from uh, from graduating to becoming a VC, but in a way, I'm a uh, you know a professional turned entrepreneur turned angel investor turned VC. So that's pretty much been the uh, the pathway. No, I love that story simply because you know there's so much cross-border expertise and experience. And that's something that I'm seeing more and more on these podcasts as I do it as well. And that's very representative of the industry right now. So I'm, you know, I'd like to explore this topic of family offices a little more with you. And there are several reports stating that family offices are interested more and more in impact investing. Is that a trend that you're seeing uh, in India as well? You know, the concept of family offices, Akash, is pretty new in India, right? So what I have realized, at least in in the India context, is that we're yet to even understand how to set up a family office in India, right? So if you if you ask me how many family offices there are in India, probably a hundred set up properly. And what I mean by that is that there's actually an outside professional who's managing the investments, and things are getting structured. There is actually a strategy of how to uh, you know manage the family wealth. Uh, so now, whether they will in invest in impact or not, that subset is probably down to even maybe 15 or 20, maybe even less than that. I mean, I know a few family offices that actually have an allocation for impact, like the Camden family office or, or the Putney family office. But most family offices in India are still getting set up. So they don't really have an impact investment or an impact angle yet. Uh, however, the, the thing is that, you know, because uh, this is still a, a growing phenomenon, I would say in the next 10 years, You'll probably have a lot of family offices that have allocated, you know, five to ten percent of operating income towards impact, right? And also, as you know, in India there is a law that uh, companies that uh, are over a certain size they have to earmark a percentage of their profits for CSR activity. So, in many ways, a lot of not a lot of family offices, but a lot of companies are involved in CSR because of this law, right? India is one of the only countries that has a mandated law that requires companies to do that. Uh, so in a way, people do have experience with impact, but uh, not a lot of experience with impact investing. And I think family offices, at least the Indian ones, maybe about at least seven to 10 years away from having a specific impact investment, uh, you know, uh, prerogative or impact investment mandate. But I want to follow that up with a three-part question. What are some of the trends that we are seeing in family offices as alternate investment vehicles in India? And I guess you can take a look at that statistic, and you previously mentioned that as well. There are just about 45 family offices in the country. And of course, that number is rapidly growing, but you can look at it from the another perspective and say, yeah, those are great numbers, but when you compare it globally, there are about 5,300 family offices. So India makes up for a very tiny fraction. What's sure. the rational behind investments into startups via family offices, and what kind of impact does that have on the alternative uh, investments industry? You know, India has not really been a very good space, a good place for PVC returns up till 2017, right? Uh, in fact, there's there are many statistics that will tell you that 80% of all PVC exists in India have happened in the last 30 months, right? So anybody that was investing into funds before that, and that's what most families did, right? Because they didn't really have a family office uh, set up. Most of them were basically having an operating business where one person called the shots, and then they would have a bunch of advisors from different, uh, uh, you know, investment firms or different mutual funds or uh, offices like that that would uh, recommend where they should park their money, 
right? Or where they should where they should invest the money. So a lot of the guys would have you know investments into real estate or into PE funds or VC funds through that uh, advisor network. But there wasn't really an allocation platform that they were really thinking through of you know I want to put X percentage of my wealth into this or Y percentage into this or that. Uh, and because that uh, wasn't there, you know a lot of these guys. Uh, that over themselves into VC funds or PE funds uh, in, in the 2005 to 2015 scenario, uh, did not get a lot of good returns out of it. Meanwhile, there was a group of early stage angels, you know, I, I believe we were a part of it as a family office, that were seeing a lot better returns by directly managing our portfolio. And uh, so there we were, you know, in many cases, we beat most of the VC returns in, in the same period that we were operating as a family office. So, Come 2017, when you know suddenly you know there is there is the media catches up to the fact that there are a number of investors in India who made money directly without going through a VC fund. That's when I think uh, other family offices are realizing that you know instead of going direct, uh, instead of going through a fund, should we go direct? And that's why you saw a lot of, lot more uh, interested family uh, offices looking at investing into uh, early to late stage. Uh, Companies, right? Everybody from the uh, the Ratan Tata family office to uh, you know the Patni family office and so on and so forth have started allocating more capital for direct investing, and they have professionals working for them full time, who are you know evaluate, looking, evaluating, and uh, making such investments. That wasn't there, you know, earlier because uh, there really wasn't any uh, anybody who had done that and made money in that space. Right. So when you talk about being a little more in control of the investments in the portfolio, how do you think family offices come up with an investment thesis? What is the rationale behind it? What is the strategy that goes into place when they're thinking about making investments in startups? See, you play to your strengths, right? So at least, uh, and, and then obviously once you learn the ropes, then you start expanding your horizon. That's the way I think about it. So for us, uh, I, uh, because of my experience in renewable uh, with energy and and uh, sales and recruiting and then also the family has some investments into hospitality uh, the first uh, investments we made in from our portfolio were things that we understood things that we could you know probably help the entrepreneur uh, sell their product and also we invested heavily into travel so those were sort of the sort of the areas that we understood and then obviously over a period of time as we got comfortable investing into these early stage companies, we expanded further into investing a little bit into crypto companies or investing into microfinance companies and things like that. And I think most family offices probably start off and or should start off with, with a similar uh, mandate, right? Start off with things you understand. So, you know, look for deal flow that is already going to be uh, coming uh, or going to be close to your current businesses. And you'll start at least getting an understanding of how to work with entrepreneurs uh, that are outside the family group of companies. And from there, you can start building uh, an understanding and then expanding beyond what the family does. At least that would be the way that uh, I would recommend anyone, any family office out there going, uh, going for VC investments. Right. So when you talk about it from a family office perspective and that you know, a lot of family offices are currently just figuring out what might be the best strategy, how can they maximize their investments. So there's a whole lot of learning process that's still taking place because it's relatively a very nascent sort of a, a venture for traditional family offices. Now, keeping that in mind from a startup perspective, what is the value that a family office brings to the table 
compared to a traditional VC firm. In most cases, family offices, I mean, uh, are around, you know, they have a lot of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial talent in-house, right? A lot of them uh, have either built the business in the current generation or had built the business in a previous generation and therefore have a, a huge network. They, uh, they can pretty much pick up the phone and call somebody and, and get, you know, access to things that otherwise would be very difficult for a VC fund to do so. Um, so you, people, when you work with a family office, they, they tend to be a little slower in terms of decision-making, may not be as aggressive as a VC fund. They may not be as aggressive when it comes to valuations that a VC fund might be able to give you, but what they will afford and with the, what they will give you is they'll give you a lot more than just the money. Right. And that's where, uh, that's where you, where you, that's where an entrepreneur choosing a family office should be choosing a family office, right? Don't choose a family office just for the money, right? Choose a family office for what they can provide besides the money. Right. And, and, and because most of these family offices that are going to have, you know, operating businesses that are still operating or they've sold, they'll have a massive network that you can tap into. Right. So, I mean, I, we have one of our LPs uh, who had a company that uh, just IPO'd last year uh, and they have a massive distribution network. Right. All, all we need to do is we, we need to develop a product uh, or have an entrepreneur develop a product and then leverage their distribution network to take it across the country. Right. Now, most VCs would not be able to get you that. But because we have a good relationship with that family office office who is an LP uh, in our fund, we can leverage that network, right? Uh, we have another one that has a listed NBFC, which is a non-banking financial corporation. And a couple of our companies uh, were requiring uh, sort of early stage, early stage venture debt uh, situations. And, uh, you know, again, we reached out, we had a conversation, got both the LP and the company to meet. And they've worked out a deal where they have funded a certain part of the company's operations using a venture debt strategy. And, uh, and and the company now gets to expand on that uh, uh, additional debt capital and, and delay the uh, next round of funding, therefore increasing the valuation. Now, these kind of things traditionally would be difficult for just a VC to do so. Very interesting. I'm glad you touched upon the topic of multi-generational ventures. Are there or there are some concerns, in fact, in the industry that family offices are not geared up for intergenerational wealth transfers. Do you see that? Do you share that concern as well? Or is that just something non-family offices think about? You know, again, in, in many cases, and it is true because I think that there is, there is the curse of three generations, I think it's called, where uh, the first generation builds it, the second generation you know, enjoys in third third generation basically squanders the wealth, right? So the fourth generation doesn't have the wealth that used to exist. And you've seen that kind of a scenario everywhere. You've seen it in India. You've seen it globally as well. And I right. think, that, you know, in India, you've, you know, there are multiple family families that have uh, that built a lot of wealth in the 80s, 90s, and even the early 2000s. And a lot of them have nothing to show for it in 2020, right? Um, and again, without getting to certain names. Um, now, um, that obviously raises the concern and, 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 and rightly so is that if, if the current generation is building wealth and the next generation does not know how to manage it, right, or doesn't, is not being uh, taught how to manage it, then what's the use of building all this wealth? And thankfully, I think that, that, uh, is, is, uh, 
that thought or that or that realization is occurring to multiple people and uh, and you know they are now actively engaging the next generation in everything from taking over the operating activities to taking over even the investing activities otherwise again i'm talking from a very india perspective here but typically uh, the investing in india works uh, as like this like whoever built the wealth right makes all the investment decisions right that's how it works but whoever built the wealth may not be the best person to make all the investment decisions that's also true right so why should that person continue making investing decisions when they may be a really good operators but not very good managers of wealth right maybe somebody in the next generation might be a better allocator of wealth than they are but for the longest time just because that's the way the patriarchal society in india was that you know one person made all the decisions they made everything all decisions from hiring the general manager for the business the, and the the ceo for the business and also how to manage the the wealth that came out of the business that scenario thankfully is now changing a lot of it is also to do with the fact that in the last 10 years uh, akash there has been about three or four different major scams that have happened in india that have that did not affect the lower strata of society but actually went after the top level family family wealth right you had the nscl scam where almost a billion dollars is right now stuck uh, where family offices and you know uh, people have put in a bunch of money and there are so many other i mean real estate funds and and nbfcs where money was allocated or or real estate projects where money has been uh, put in where, which is stuck and i think that realization came in that uh, the person making the wealth should not be the one allocating it as well and there needs to be a second uh, you know second level of thought that that decides how the wealth should be allocated and that is thankfully leading to a situation today where you know you're seeing next generation getting involved in the decision making they're getting involved in 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 allocating well they're getting involved in even uh, the operating businesses and whether a certain business should continue or should shut down and these are all positive signs i think this if this can continue for the next 10 15 years i think you'll see a very different india i think the number the number you quoted was 45 out of 5300 yep. our family offices are in india i think you might you might see a 10x growth on the india side if if we can continue with this kind of a thought thought uh, you know process no i love that that that's really great to hear and it's good to see that a change is coming about and that's great news for the industry as such you know you previously mentioned earlier in the podcast as well that um a lot of family offices have traditionally been investing in not the startup space but have made um investments across commodities so how does a wealthy individual find a family office that aligns with his or her personal needs and philosophy from specific investments with respect to startups if i understand your question correctly are you talking about like a a multifamily office joining a multifamily office kind of a thing it could be either a multifamily office or a wealthy person being an lp in a family office so traditionally again it depends from everyone's tax situation from person to person but um like in our case we have an operating company from which we make all the investments right and we had another family office join us uh, uh directly and then a couple of them join us indirectly where we created separate structures for them this is when i was managing the family office at alpha uh and uh, and again you know every person to themselves so we had a family office who eventually became a major lp uh, in fact a part of the gp also in our fund 
uh, and they traditionally are public equity and late stage investors, right? So the typical check would be at least a million, if not $2 million, right? Mm-hmm. So they don't want to look at investments below that. And me at Seed, I was very clear that I'm not going to write a million dollar check at Seed. Uh, the maximum check that I would write is 250K uh, in USD, which is about two, two and a half crores. And, uh, and therefore, I don't want that kind of excess capital that is being forced upon me to deploy at early stages because uh, one of the things we're very, very anal about, uh, Akash, is that we're very, very anal about the valuations we get into, right? So if I have a million dollars to deploy, then suddenly the valuation goes up because right. you know, you're going to end up owning 60% of a business in its first round. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the kind of investor we are. So in, in that case, this, fa- this family office, the specific one I'm talking about, they allocated some capital for us and said, listen, we want we want access to your deal flow. So when this when these companies grow up, we want to be able to write that two million dollar check. But why don't we set up a joint venture where you know you whenever you're investing, we're also going to invest alongside with you, and you know whatever it could be one is to one, one is to two, whatever that number is. And then uh, and and if and whenever those investments exit profitably, then obviously there'll be a carry for us as the lead investor. And that worked out very well. I mean, uh, in fact, their portfolio. The, this specific office, uh, family office's portfolio, I think, is the highest performing, uh, uh, you know, uh, portfolio in our overall portfolios of, uh, that we've created for different family offices. And it's and and then uh, thankfully they became one of the largest uh, LPs in our fund as well. Very interesting. Now I'd like to change the focus a little bit and talk about Arta, and explore that from an investments perspective. What is the thesis and philosophy behind your fund? In a very simple sense, Akash, we, we are the early stage institutional VC that's going to come in, that is looking to back uh, founders that are obsessed with solving a real problem uh, and that that want a uh, a non traditional VC to come on the tap table to almost in a way help them co create ventures. Right. What I mean by co create is that. We're one of those guys that that obviously both Vinod and I have been operators in our previous avatars. We've both been angel investors, and we both worked with a number of startups. I think between both of us, 150 plus, uh, of which you know we've seen six of them uh, all the way up to unicorn. And about I think we were just doing some tallying the the other day. About 17 of the companies that we've invested in are valued over 100 million dollars today. So. Uh, We've obviously learned some a way of how to how to how to first of all build a venture from uh, a uh, you know early stage early traction stage to scaling stage and then obviously to to building massive scale and also bringing in the right investors at the right time. And so when our thesis is that we come in as the first investor, we put in a we put in let's say 250k 300k of capital. And then as as the company grows and they need more capital, we keep putting more and more money all the way up to Series A. So we'll typically start off with a 300K check when they come in, in a seed round. And in, in India, just, just for the listeners, in India, seed comes first and then comes angel, right? Or pre-Series A, as we call it. So uh, we'll put 300K at seed. We'll put 600K at, let's say, a pre-Series A round. And we can do up to 1.2 to 1.5 million in a Series A round. But at Series A, we will not be the lead. Right, we will find you a lead investor, but we'll write a significant chunk of the capital uh, that is coming in the Series A round. What that helps the entrepreneur with is that they don't have to worry about fundraising for the next three years, at least, because we we'll, we will fund them as long as things are uh, in the right direction. 
and uh, and when they when they have to go raise their first growth round which is you know in india typical series around would be 4 to 8 million mm-hmm. uh, they're not trying to raise the entire amount of capital right they come in with a pre commit from their seed investor for up to a million to a million and a half and that has a lot of value right because most seed investors in india don't do series a rounds or at least don't write such a large check at series a we do <clears throat> and that's where i think we uh, differentiate ourselves over all the other angel networks and 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 a handful of the seed funds that are there that where the guy that's going to be there uh, for the next 3 years we're going to ensure that the founders focus on solving the problem instead of fundraising all the time and uh, when they need the money uh, we we'll, we have enough reserves in our fund to you know uh, fund fund their growth all the way up to series a and even at series a we'll come up, come to the last check so we're looking to back entrepreneurs that that need that kind of backing or they want that kind of backing Well, that's brilliant. You speak about seventeen startups with a hundred plus million dollar valuation, which is great for an early stage fund. And something that most VCs will envy, looking at that kind of IRR. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're you've been an early investor, as you spoke about in some of the unicorns today. One of that being Oyo. Yeah. In retrospect, um, share with us the details of how such a deal comes along. Uh, along. Uh, how do you stumble upon something like that today, which is worth billions of dollars? I guess what I'm really curious to understand is what differentiates between a regular investor from a great one, and what is the process that they follow. The good thing was, you know, we we were part of a early stage accelerator called Venture Nursery, right, which was set up by Shravan and Ravi. Uh, almost, uh, I think this was something around 2012. um and i was i was part of the selection council and the mentoring council for this early stage accelerator so you know you know how serendipity is right so so interestingly i was at the uh, india india england match for the t20 world cup in sri lanka and while i was and i was trying to book a, a hotel room and it was so expensive and then i found this interesting little website called airbnb at that time and uh, i got a room that that uh, or i got a apartment that had three rooms and in a high rise uh, which was owned by a doctor and when i went to colombo i i uh, was stayed at this doctor's house and it was uh, and this doctor was just so gaga about the entire app he was like it's so easy and and we have people that stay here very interesting people that stay here all the time and in fact we've been having so much business from these guys that i'm actually building an extra floor on top of this uh on top on top of my building to to house more people from airbnb right after the colombo trip i i was heading headed off to the us for some for some work and while i was there in dallas i again stayed at an airbnb and i met an, and this was an indian guy who uh, owned a apartment where he lived at and then uh, whenever uh, an airbnb uh, booking would happen he would go and stay stay at his girlfriend's house and this was a beautiful apartment i mean if i had booked a hotel of this size and my parents were accompanying me at the time It would have cost me at least six hundred six seven hundred dollars for a night in Dallas, and this was like less than one fifty bucks. It was one fifty or two hundred dollars, something like that. And I was like, and again, this guy was extremely extremely excited about this Airbnb thing, and I was thinking to myself like, you know, what is this Airbnb? And I was again at that time a very early investor, not not somebody who had a lot of experience. So when I went back to India, one of the first ventures that pitched to, that was pitched to us as as the mentoring uh, as the selection council was Ritesh's company called Oravel, and at that time he was trying to build a corporate Airbnb model. So what his thought was that um, uh, instead of just tourism, 
and tourists that want a uh, Airbnb model uh, and it would enjoy something outside the hotel experience, there's also going to be corporate travelers that would love to have a homely experience when they're traveling to different cities. And so he wanted to build this thing called Oravel, which would be sort of a corporate Airbnb. Uh, and, uh, and you know, I, I was extremely excited about it because I had just seen the kind of impact Airbnb had all the way from Colombo to Dallas, right? So I, uh, I, I, I was immediately ready to, to invest in the company. It, it didn't, uh, and, and it didn't matter to me that Ritesh was 18 years old, but some of the more experienced angels that were with us in the, in, 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 in this uh, selection council said, you know what, uh, he's still 18, right? So, uh, what, you know, how can we just trust somebody that's so young and how do we know that he's going to actually follow through? So, uh, you know, there was a couple of things, there was a couple of prerequisites that, uh, Ritesh had to make through, but eventually investment happened. And one of the things we did, that is that I did after investing in Ritesh was I became one of the guys that was uh, mystery shopping his hotels and or his uh, properties and telling him, you know, what exactly was uh, happening at the property level versus what, you know, be, was being talked about at, in the in the boardroom. And uh, yeah, I think I think that's one of the better ways that uh, I mean, there are many ways an investor can can help a startup, but this was the way we helped him out. At least I helped him out. Was that uh, I took care of, you know, uh, making sure what was happening uh, on Main Street was uh, was, you know, congruent with what with what was talk being talked about uh, inside the uh, conference conference room. And yeah, that and obviously everything else after that, they pivoted from he pivoted from uh, Oravel to Oyo Rooms. Uh, after having a personal experience of visiting these, uh, you know, uh, two-star properties as you call them in India, where uh, where there was a huge de- discrepancy, a two-star, uh, a two-star property would be like an Econolodge, right, in okay. the U.S. or a Motel Six, but there's a huge the, in India we don't have a branded Motel Six play across the country at the time, so it, what would happen is that you, an Econolodge or a two-star in in Delhi would be very different from an Econolodge or a two-star in in Mumbai. Or would be very different from 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 the same uh, same price point or the same two star in a Bangalore or a Calcutta. Uh, what Ritesh did was he decided that he was going to go standardize the entire space in the country and then create one brand that only did three things, which was like it would give a clean room, it would give free Wi-Fi, it would give free breakfast, and that was it. And uh, and, and obviously that 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 caught on like a rage because that was a need of the hour, and uh, you know and you know history has been written ever since well for the vcs it's being at the right pace at the right time and for the startups it's about surrounding yourself with the right kind of investors who will add value and impact along the way you, you mean you you want to have investors Akash, that are not going to say yes to everything you say right, right. They, you want investors to be your fan but you also want investors to question some of your decisions and that you have a good enough thesis that you can defend yourself or alter the, or or be teachable enough that you will alter that thesis if you find a better idea, right? And, and I think Ritesh was one of those guys. And even today, I mean, uh, even today, he's 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 such such a keen student of the game that uh, you know that he'll he'll never disregard any idea. He will give every single idea that is pitched to him or every single suggestion given to him. He will give it its its, its due, uh, whether he follows it or not. Is is that's that's a different thing altogether, uh, because that's a decision he has to make at you know at a personal level. But but be, uh, being having the ability to hear everyone's opinion and then making a decision that's that's a very unique quality in a founder and that's what 
I think Ritesh has beautifully. I mean, that's a great point that you make because um, I've spoke to Pranav Pai previously on this podcast and he mentioned two things. One, he mentioned that there's a lot of respect amongst VCs for young entrepreneurs. And on the other side, there's also a lot of respect for young fellow VCs. And I think that's a that's a change that we're seeing in the VC industry, not just globally, but also in India. And that's very interesting to me. Yeah, you know, it's it's. Uh, I think people that come out, if, they, if you've been a career professional, right, and you've been inside, let's say, multiple consulting firms or, you know, you're 20 years in, into a corporate, then you come out and you try to work on a startup. It's it. It's almost like taking Neo when Neo came out of the Matrix, right? <laughs> they can they can choke on themselves, right? right. Uh, I mean, we, we've had issues, and and I think until Vinod came along, uh, we had. I mean, I had tremendous issues with, uh, you know, recruiting and keeping people around that had been in a corporate for more than five years because they get used to a certain lifestyle, right? In, in a corporate, like, you know, there is, there, is a, there is a job description, there is things that you're told, uh, told to do and, and everything, everything has boundaries, right? When you're working in a startup, there's no boundaries. Everybody has to do everything, right? And, and sometimes the founder is, is, is the guy answering answering the customer service line and the guy helping clean the toilet and the guy who's trying to you know negotiate a, a better a better rate for the coffee machine uh, and and many people that have been inside a corporate for too long find it very difficult to to uh, to live in that kind of an environment right and the same thing happens with even the VCs I think some of the some of the finance managers that have been you know VCs in the past, uh, you know, I think that game has changed, right? A lot of these founders who are coming up, and because they're younger, and because they are, uh, they don't come from a traditional, uh, you know, IIT. I, or, 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 I mean, they don't come with a 10 years of experience before they 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 put up their startup. They require a different level of VC, which is why the young VCs are doing well. No, I love that. So I wanted to pivot a little bit here, and you know, pull out a quote that that you had given, and where you mentioned, you know, you want to build. 10 to 15 micro venture, micro VC funds that will invest in different verticals uh, such as fintech, artificial intelligence with using the same strategy, right? Getting in early, writing smaller checks, having lots of money to follow on in, in, in the subsequent rounds with very low operational costs and focusing on making money from, from that interest. So from that perspective, what made you say that? Why are traditional VC firms either making seed investments themselves or setting up more micro VC extensions. And on the other side, do you see micro VCs being a threat to institutional investors or is it an opportunity to diversify those investments? See, the traditional VC model has gone undergone a sea of change, right? Ever since you had these mega or massive vision fund kind of models that came in. Mm -hmm. uh, and then obviously once vision fund came in and they started, you know, they had the ability to write a $2 billion check. Then you had the larger VCs also had to graduate their funds and then they had to write, start writing massive checks. Uh, and, and a lot of them went out and raised billions and billions of dollars of capital and they're now deploying it, uh, so on and so forth. I won't comment on uh, you know, that space, but that space, because again, that's a space that we don't uh, really invest into. But because of what's happened over there, it, it, it's also led to a sea of change what's happening on the bottom side, right? So a lot of the larger VCs have actually graduated up from a series A to maybe more of a series BC kind of a thing. Uh, and a lot of the traditional seed seed VCs have actually graduated to series A, uh, which, which, which left a very interesting portion of seed open. Now, there is 
an issue when, uh, and again, I'll, I'll, let's let's say I name Sequoia. Let's say Sequoia does the seed round for for a certain company. They write the first 250k check. Okay. First of all, if you compare that to their, you know, multi-billion-dollar funds or let's say their last 550, 800-million-dollar fund, writing a 250k check, no matter what kind of return that that gives, even a, even a 100x return on that would return 25 million, right? Which would not make a dent to to their overall return. So for them to write that check itself is 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 gonna it's more co- it's it's costlier to write the check than the return they make from it. So that's why they don't want to write that check. Also, it also leads to a problem where let's say they write the two first 250k check, and the company now needs a follow-on round, and for whatever reason Sequoia does not want to put in the follow-on round or they say no for it. You know what's going to happen, right? That company is going to shut down because if Sequoia said no to a follow-on, which other VC in town would like to touch them? True. So that's what's that's what's happening is that a lot of these uh, you know the larger VC funds are now setting up separate structures. So you know Sequoia has a surge and 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 multiple different VCs have set up different different structures or are backing different structures uh, where they're saying you know what why don't you guys go and do the scouting for us, right? And we'll make a return because we we are on the LP list or we we're backing it you know if not directly then indirectly. And then once the company's ready ready to graduate, that's when our larger funds can come in and put in the four five. 10 million dollars that is required to for the growth st- for the growth side and i think that that strategy is going to continue however i also believe that the micro vc strategy has a lot of upside for the investor right uh, micro vcs traditionally are much smaller so they have less partners they have uh, less operational costs so obviously there's a lot less uh, expenses and a lot more money going to, going into investing i also believe that micro vcs are a lot a lot more nimbler because they can they can they can quickly write that 250k 500k check while a traditional large VC would take some time, uh, you know, going through their processes and, and their committees and their investment committees and all that to get approval. Uh, so so I I see I see the micro VC structure is probably going to grow not at the expense of the institutional side, but probably as a subset of what's uh, of what's already happening in the ecosystem is that you know you're seeing a demarcation between the small check writers and the massive check writers. And what's really, and where both of these guys are eating out of, are the guys that are raising the hundred to five hundred million dollar funds, or maybe the hundred to you know two hundred million dollar funds, because those are the guys that are getting squished on either side. They're not big enough to write a hundred million dollar check, like like you know some of the larger funds, but they're also too too big to write the two fifty k check. So I think both the micro VC and the large VC format are eating out of the uh, uh, the market share of the guy in the middle. So one of the reasons why that's actually worked out is because the last five or six years, and you mentioned this previously in the episode as well, that the market has gone higher and higher. And from my vantage point, it eventually will become difficult for fund managers to differentiate themselves when there's a down market, be, be it a micro VC fund or be it a growth stage fund or any fund that you are. How do you see that playing out and what are your thoughts on fund performances in the future? See, like we said, the proof is going to be in the pudding. Right. So yeah, I think uh, the good thing about a micro VC fund is because they're smaller, it's much quicker for them to deploy their capital, uh, and then they also able to rotate out capital much quicker. Now let me explain why. Most of the time, micro VC funds, uh, at least globally, have followed followed two formats. They either have high ownership stakes or they, or they're following a spray and pray format, right? Where so if if they're going for high ownership stakes, they're typically small size funds, 30 million to maybe 50 million. But they, on average, own about 20 to 25% of their portfolio companies. So what that means is that if they have a single portfolio company, and let's just, let's just choose a $30 million example, 
and if if their average ownership is 25% in their portfolio all they need is is an exit at 120 to 150 million one exit at 120 to 150 million pays off the entire fund and then everything else that they do, that they're investing into is going to be a profit game for them right uh, the, on the other side then you have the spray and pray or, or the diversified fund right where they probably own you know they own 2 to 3% in every company but they have maybe 100 to 200 companies that they're investing in so they're not providing they're not really providing a lot of value maybe uh, as an operating vc but what they are doing is that they because they are they have such a huge uh, ownership it, it, there will be certain winners and those winners will take care of of giving a return both strategies have worked and and both strategies have merit uh, we obviously follow the one where we where a small fund with very high ownership stake right we uh, traditionally end up owning 25% uh, in our portfolio uh, now that typically unless you've really made a, a mistake in selecting companies that kind of a process should be able to return at least the capital back right there there could be a lot of uh, you know uh, question marks about whether you make an, an amazing return or not I, I believe they will because uh, when we invested as a family office we 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 applied the same strategy but uh, but you know it, essentially it doesn't require a billion dollar exit for a micro vc fund holding 25% for them to return capital back to investors, right? Now, in, but if when you go to the traditional VC format where you're saying, okay, you have a $200 million fund and you're gonna make maybe on average, you know, 15, 15 investments and each one of them is gonna be worth 15, 20 mil, right? But you're gonna be owning about 15, 20% in the portfolio. I mean, 20% on a $200 million fund, you need a billion dollar exit just to return capital back, right? It's just the pure mathematics. Now, how many, uh, people have actually had a billion dollar exit in the world, right? I, I would say less than, I mean, where they invested in a company and they exited at over a billion dollar valuation, right. less than 0.01%, right? If that's the kind of odds that that you need, need to have to get the money back, not even a return, I think you'll see a lot more uh, people gravitate, gravitating towards the micro VC model with high ownership stake. Because over there, you, you know, even a billion dollar exit would return six to seven times the fund maybe even eight times the fund versus, you know, in a large VC format, you might be able to deploy a $50 million check into a large VC fund, but you you, you really have to hope that those guys were really, really good at, at, at building unicorns. No, I like that perspective. That's very interesting. Uh, I tried exploring this with some of the other VCs as well. This is something that we constantly think about, especially the down market side of things and how that really affects fund performance. So I really appreciate your insights on that. Now, I'd like to put you on the spot and ask you some really rapid fire sort of questions. So from a family office perspective, how do you, how do you guard yourself in the context of sustainable investing? Sustainable investing, we, we don't, we don't go after sustain, we don't look after sustainability. I think we separate the, um, we, we separate the money-making from the, uh, the charitable side. So we, we invest a part of our, our exits into, into charities and into, uh, impact investments, but we don't really, uh, we don't try to mix both of them when we're investing. Got it. One sector in India that you're super bullish about and why? B2B. I think B2B is going to, I mean, uh, B2B companies from India are going to do extremely well. Uh, see, India is a very cutthroat market, right? When it comes to, to realizations. So most B2B companies that do very well in India, they are able to build a revenue or, or a business model that has extremely low operating costs. And when they go abroad or they go out to other markets, they realize that they can get a lot more uh, realization for the same service or product. 
So, but their cost base almost remains the same, right? Because they're operating it out of uh, in, in India, where, where and they've they've grown up to that kind of a uh, grown up in that kind of an environment. So, I think Indian B two B companies are gonna go uh, are gonna go global, and, and they're gonna they're gonna rule the roost. Are there any sectors within B two B that you're excited about, or is it just the entire space? I think the entire space. I, 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 it'd be difficult to point out a single sector, but I think the entire space, uh, any Indian B2B company, whether it's B2B SaaS or, or otherwise, is going to do uh, very well. Okay. And one thing that you'd like to change about venture capital or investments in India? One thing. I, I, I wish there was a way that we could, uh, we could reduce the amount of time it takes for us to close an investment. So even after, I I, I think uh, even after getting all approvals and getting the due diligence completed, which itself, by the way, in India, due diligence can be such a energy sapping uh, exercise. What is the average time that you take from first conversation to close of deal? So we target 90 90 days. That's that's an internal thing that 90 days. But what's what's been happening is because, you know, because a lot of these entrepreneurs are, are managing companies for the first time. And they've been running the company maybe for a year or two. Uh, a lot of the times they don't keep up with all the paperwork that needs to be uh, needs to be done, right? Like a quarterly reporting or the quarterly board meetings. And when they come to us, there's just a list of uh, you know violations that they need to pay fines for. And you know it's 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 every single time. It's like the entrepreneur will come and tell us that everything is in order. They've done everything to ensure the money can go in quickly. And every single time there are issues, right? And I think I think that. Uh, if there was a way where the government could just make it easy for some of these guys, not you know, uh, to manage their companies, uh, that we would really appreciate it. It would at least cut down our deployment time by 30 to 60 days. Wow, that's uh, that's quite that's quite a number. Yeah. In the 2020 context, I want you to complete this sentence: Alternative asset allocation will be the year of the investing. <laughs> just in general. Yeah, because I think this this year we are obviously because of what's happened with the Vision Fund and uh, there's been an overall general slowdown. Obviously, a lot of that is also getting catalyzed with what's happening with the coronavirus. Uh, I, I think this is going to be a year where valuations are going to cool down. A lot of the funds are going to take the later stage funds are going to take their time putting in capital, uh, investing money, and that's going to lead to a very interesting time for uh, you know for these new ventures coming out. They might not be able to find capital as easily as they got it for the last two and a half, three years. And at that time, the valuations cooled down. You know, there is a lot more uh, ventures coming to, uh, that are looking for money than people providing the money. And that's a pretty good time to to invest. Uh, invest, right? So, if you are if you are looking to be in alternative investing, or if you already are, I hope you're sitting on a lot of cash because there's going to be a lot of opportunity coming in. Awesome. And lastly, what is your advice for startups on fundraising? Focus on, on two things. Focus on on, on uh, how much you need, right? And focus on uh, who you want it from. And let everything else take care of itself. I think a lot of the startups that focus on valuation and and and, and other hygiene factors uh, miss out, and they spend a lot more time fundraising than than trying to deploy the money. Uh, so I would leave that. I would leave them with this very simple quote that uh, Mark Cuban uses all the time, is which is. Uh, it's better to own uh, 10% of a watermelon than 80% of a grape. Well, I think it's a great note to end this podcast on. But one thing that I do regret is I didn't get a chance to explore renewable energy 
and get your perspectives on that. But that just gives me an opportunity to bring you back on the podcast sometime later and just talk about renewable energy because I know that's a space that you made investments in. That's your area of expertise. So we'll get you back sometime later on the podcast and we'll talk all about investments in this space. Fantastic. Thanks a lot, Akash. I, I thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure speaking to you. I really had a lot of fun and I really like your perspectives on family offices and especially when you mentioned, you know, being at the right place at the right time from uh, from a VC perspective. I think that is so true. That's one of the ways that you really identify and, and find, you know, the, the next big thing. And from a, a startup perspective, you've got to surround yourself with the right people. So I'm pretty sure these are valuable insights. So really, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Akash. Really enjoyed enjoyed the podcast, and you know, uh, I, I am so excited about. In many ways, your firm and our firm are investing. Uh, we have a similar investing style, and hopefully, one of these days, we can invite you to co-invest with us in a few of our ventures. That would be brilliant. Well, wasn't that another great episode? I simply loved it. There were some great insights packed in there, from what family offices bring to the table outside of capital to how micro VCs rotate capital faster than traditional funds. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And if you did and are still listening, and I really wish you are, I hope you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast as we bring you more amazing insights and perspectives into the world of venture capital in India. Tune in again next week. And until then, keep hustling.